Well, good morning. So it has been about a month since I've preached a sermon, so I am really hyper. So this could be a lot of fun. Um, we'll see how it goes. But for those of you who are new, my name is Chris, and I serve with Paul as one of the pastors. Uh, as he mentioned, we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you claim to follow Christ, if you're a disciple of Jesus, this sermon is important for you because it is here that Jesus lays out a vision of what it means to be part of his kingdom. He is laying out for us, this is what it means to follow me, to be my disciple. And so he is shaping our beliefs and our attitudes and our affections around his kingdom and who he is. Let me also say, for those of you this morning that wouldn't claim to follow Christ, you're, you're here, maybe someone brought you here, or you're a curious skeptic and you're kind of wondering what does it mean to follow Jesus, what is this Bible thing, what is this church thing all about, or maybe you're here this morning and you're not really sure what you believe. Maybe you're a Christian, you're not sure, you're, you're kind of figuring those things out, and you have a lot of questions. But let me say to you, I hope, it is my sincere desire, that you experience in our words, and, and I hope you've already experienced already in our worship, and, and in the community of First City, that we are a community that desperately needs Jesus. Like we, We're broken sinners, we, we don't think we're better than anyone else, we need the gospel, we need Christ to save us. We have a great hope in Jesus, and it's through Jesus Christ, who was crucified for sinners, but is now resurrected and reigning. He offers new life and a new community, and our heart, our deepest desire, is that you would come to know and love and follow Christ. And so if you have questions, and, and, and you would be so bold as to perhaps trust a pastor, I'd love to talk with you. So whether after the service or shoot me an email and I can buy you a cup of coffee or take you out to lunch, I mean, free lunch, come on. You name the place, we'll go, it's on me, and we can talk about Jesus. Um, feel free to do that. Know that we want to be here to help, to answer questions, to just know you and love you and hear your story. No pressure, no sales pitch, um, but we do want you to know who Christ is and to follow him. And so to set the stage for this section of the Sermon on the Mount we're going to consider this morning— Let's talk about fake news. You guys like some fake news? You've probably heard this term thrown around. It's, it's a, a favorite sort of uh, cut that our president likes to use against certain news stations. And, and there's a lot of people that debate, is fake news a real thing? And it probably depends on which news station you, you watch. Like that other one, they're fake news, but the one I watch, I mean, that's the truth. And so we, we can debate, we can kind of throw around this idea of fake news and claim it's a problem or think it's overstated. But what the problem of fake news, what the issue of fake news reveals to us is that there are plenty of lies being thrown around in our world. Like our world is shot through with deception and deceit. And we have to deal with that every day to some degree or another. So whether it's coming from the media lying to us or the government lying to us, or perhaps you have a coworker or a boss that likes to, to fib or tell white lies, or perhaps it's with your kids. You know, your kids always tell the truth, right? Never lie to you at all. Or perhaps your spouse. We've all experienced, we've all been victims of deceit and lying. Some of us may even live with that expectation every day. Well, I'm going to get lied to today. I'm just going to wait for it. And it's really easy for us, though, to sort of lament things like fake news and the ways that we get deceived throughout our day. But let me ask, how are you living in deceit? See, it's not just a problem out there. 
it's us. We all are both victims and we perpetuate the problem as well. How are the ways that you live your life and the things that you say and do and the image that you project, how are all of those things fake news? And so as those who are not just victims of lies, but those who are also perpetrators, we're all part of the problem. And it is to this problem that Jesus addresses in Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Jesus confronts our problem of deceit and he contrasts it with new life in the kingdom. And so here's the main idea for us this morning. Disciples of Jesus live true. And I want to break this talk down into two parts to kind of get inside what Jesus is saying. The first is the problem of deceit. So we'll set the stage with the problem of deceit. And then we're going to contrast that with the power of truth. And so Jesus confronts the problem of deceit through a topic that would have been very relevant and practical to the people of his day, oath-taking. And so let's, let's set a little context for this time regarding oath-taking. So taking oaths, whether personally or for the purpose of business or in a legal setting, were an important part of this ancient culture. It was sort of extra security to, to guarantee that what someone said they were actually going to do. And it was often that someone would invoke the name of a deity. They would say, I swear by such and such deity, meaning that if I break my oath, may this deity punish me. And in verse 33, Jesus summarizes what the Old Testament teaches concerning oaths. Again, you have heard it that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So this is summarizing what the Old Testament teaches about oaths. And the Old Testament has some very clear instruction for how the people of God were to approach oaths. And it was pretty straightforward and simple. Keep your word. Tell the truth. Don't break your oath. So here's a couple examples that represent what the Old Testament teaches. So no, Numbers 30, one through two. This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If you make an oath, if you make a promise, keep it. Whether it's to the Lord or anyone else, keep it. Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So what this says is to break an oath is actually to break the third commandments. You know, don't take the Lord's name in vain. We often think don't use the Lord's name as a swear word. Well, the, the more direct application was don't vow by my name and then break that vow because you're taking my name in vain. You're, you're saying my name has no worth. So this is how the people of God were to approach oath-taking. Be honest. Keep your word. Don't invoke the name of God falsely. You know, we still use oaths today. If you've ever been to court and you had to swear to tell the truth, if a government officials take oaths to uphold the Constitution, for those of you in the military, you have to take the oath of enlistment. So we understand what it means to take an oath even today. We might not invoke deities, but we do understand, hey, if I break this oath, there's probably punishment coming. Even kids use oaths. Like when I was growing up in my hood, it was cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Or I swear on my mom's grave, even though your mom wasn't dead. It's like kids come up with like the most morbid <laughs> oaths and morbid punishments. Like if I break this, may I die? And then you can stick a needle in my eye. I mean, that's just, that's just wrong. Yeah. 
But we understand oath-taking today. And what it reveals, much like fake news, is we have a truth problem. We, we have oaths because we know that people don't keep their word. And so we need this extra layer of security so that people will keep their word and not go back on what they've promised. And so oaths, in one way, are protection. The protection for people entering into an agreement to say, hey, I'm not going to get broken by what you're going to tell me is not true. And on the other, other side, for those of us that might be tempted to break our word, here's this oath. Oh, I better not break my word. I gave an oath. And so it's sort of creating these boundaries, this safety net, if you will, because of the problem of sin. So here's a question. If the Old Testament allowed for oaths, then is Jesus contradicting the Old Testament by telling his disciples not to take oaths in the rest of this passage? No. And this is where context becomes very important because what Jesus is doing is he's talking about the way that the Old Testament had been incorrectly applied. He's not contradicting the Old Testament teaching. He's contradicting what had, that had been turned into by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Here's how they twisted the truth. They created these fine and complex distinctions between which kind of oaths were binding and which were not. And so they wanted to say, okay, here's this Old Testament teaching about keeping your word, and here's all these exceptions. What it really means is, yeah, keep your oath here, but not in these instances. Here's some examples. If you swore on the name of God, well then yes, keep your word. That oath is binding. However, if you swore by heaven and earth or by your head, yourself, well, that oath wasn't necessarily binding. And it got even more complex. If you swore toward Jerusalem, you had to keep your oath. But if you swore by Jerusalem, your oath wasn't binding. Go figure. And so the Pharisees and religious leaders, they took what was supposed to be a straightforward and simple directive. Keep your word. Be a person of integrity. Be honest. And they began to twist it and create loopholes, create exceptions, create ambiguities. Oh, here's all these reasons why you really don't have to keep your word. Only in these instances do you need to keep your word. And so they took something meant to ensure and protect the truth and made it a complex way by which you can undermine the truth. Talk about compounding the truth problem when the very thing that's supposed to protect you becomes a vehicle for more deception. In Matthew 23, 16 through 22, we get a little further glimpse into this system and Jesus again confronts the Pharisees for creating these loopholes and these exceptions that foster deceit. This is what Jesus says to them. Woe to you. Here's the, here's the uh, less nice version. Cursed are you. Literally, this is cursed are you. Blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. 
And so it's this system of loopholes and exceptions and ambiguities that Jesus is attacking and he's going at and confronting. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says in Matthew 5, 34 and 36, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And so Jesus exposes the shallow system of loopholes and exceptions. He's saying, look, trying to create this distinction between swearing by God and swearing by something else, it's theological and moral bankruptcy because you cannot separate taking oath to God and swearing by God and swearing by his stuff. This is Jesus's point. There is no difference between swearing by God or swearing by heaven and earth or Jerusalem or by yourself or whatever else because everything belongs to God. You cannot escape God's rule and reign. He is over it all. And so if you swear by something that belongs to God, you still are bound to be a person of honesty and integrity. And so Jesus says, if you need this complex system to tell the truth, if you need this complex system to give you an out, then you're missing the point. You're missing what I've called you to. You're missing the whole teaching of the Old Testament and what God's people were supposed to be, which was people of honesty and integrity. Look, there isn't a square inch of creation cut off from God and where deceit gets a loophole. It's all under his righteousness and goodness and reign. And so in confronting this system of loopholes, Jesus gets right to the root and the heart of deception. In verse 37, Jesus says that our deception is from evil. Trying to create ambiguities and loopholes and all these things, this is evil. In the Greek, this is literally from the evil one. So the implication is, is that the evil of our deceit is modeled after the evil of the devil's deceit. In John 8, 44, this is what Jesus says of the devil or Satan. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So when we deceive, we follow in the footsteps of the devil, who has been a liar from the beginning. And here's what the devil does with deceit. He's after control, and he's seeking to create doubt in the goodness of God. So if you go back to Genesis, the first time the devil comes on the scene in history, what is he doing? He's deceiving Eve. Eve, if you eat of the tree, you aren't going to die. Not really. When God said you would die, he didn't mean die, die. That's just him trying to scare you to keep you from something that you should have. And so he's slinging ambiguities and doubts and loopholes and exceptions. And underneath that, this is what he's saying. Eve, God's holding out on you. He's not really good. He's stingy. He's keeping something back that you need. And so you're better off going your own way. Like, make your own rules. You you don't need God to tell you what to do. You can know good and evil on your own and define those things for yourself. You don't need to submit to God's power. You can do this on your own. You be the power. You be the one that calls the shots. Make your own way. Define your own reality. 
And so all, in all of this, Satan is telling Eve, hey, grab control of yourself because God is not good and cannot be trusted. And so you are the one that has to take control. And so underneath all of the evil of deceit is a power grab and doubting that God is good and he is for you. And their elaborate system of loopholes and exceptions, this is what the Pharisees and religious leaders were doing. They're trying to grab control of other people. I want to manipulate people and circumstances for my gain and my good. And implicitly what they were saying, they never admit this, but implicitly what they were saying is, God, you're not good. I can't trust you with my day and my circumstances. And so I have to control myself. And so let's be honest about our dishonesty. We are often more disciples of the Pharisees than we are of Jesus. We struggle to live fully true. Sometimes we straight up lie, but more often we like to use clever language and loopholes and exceptions and manipulation. But in all of that, we're making a power grab. We're saying, God, I cannot trust you to be good and before me. I cannot trust your control. So I'm going to grab things for myself. I'm going to control things whatever the cost. And so let's consider some of the ways that we do this. In business dealings or other work, do you ever fudge the numbers? Do you, do you ever sort of fudge the numbers at work and so your bottom line looks better? You come out with a little bit more in your bank account? How about on your taxes? I'm meddling now, right? Right? Have you ever cut corners in a project that you're getting paid to do? Have you ever been a bit manipulative, dare I say dishonest, in buying or selling something on Craigslist? What are the ways that you are saying, God, I can't trust you to provide for me, and so I need to do the things that I need to do to help my bank account? I need to provide for myself and my family. And if it means being dishonest, then I'll do it because God, you're really not that good. You're really not going to care for me. I can't trust you with my finances. I can't trust you to provide for me. I can't trust you with my security. Now, you may be thinking, well, it's just a small little thing and, and the government doesn't need my money anyway. But look, Not a single square inch is cut off from the sovereignty and rule and reign of God. Not a single square inch can you kind of walk over into a corner and say, I control this corner, and so I can do whatever I want. And here's the other thing. If you're dishonest in the little things, you're going to be dishonest in the big things. Albert Einstein put it this way. Whoever is careless with the truth in small matters cannot be trusted in important matters. It will bleed into bigger things. And so we cannot minimize by saying, it's just a little bit of money here. It's just cutting corners a little bit here. Because ultimately, it betrays our doubt. It betrays our desire for control. How about the way that we can manipulate people? Do you ever use clever words, half-truths, to get people to do what you want? To kind of control them, manage them? So several years ago, uh, Mindy and I were in South Carolina on vacation And we got this deal at this place that was essentially like a timeshare. And so part of the thing was we had to sit through one of those, you know, however long talks about the timeshare. And and so, you know, this is not a knock on timeshares per se. Okay, so if you have a timeshare, cool. 
Um, if you ever want to loan it to me, I'm, I'm, I'm up. Um, so, but we had to sit through this presentation, and, and the lady, I mean, she was laying it on thick. I mean, she was very good at what she does. And, and so she started selling us on all the things of why we needed to buy this timeshare. And I kid you not, here's what she began to do. She, at one point, she started crying, saying that going on vacation had saved her marriage when she was married and her husband had passed, and that she was concerned that if Mindy and I did not go on vacation, our marriage could be a wreck. And I'm like, wow, you are really good at this. Here's the problem, though. I was being manipulative, too, because I was playing along and making her think that she had me until the end. I'm like, no, I'm sorry, not for us. So there was a lot of manipulation going on right there. But we can do this with people, right? We can use clever language. We can use half truths. We can tell people what they want to hear in order to control them for our ends. And so people become objects of our deceits. People become objects not to love and to serve, but to control for our own sense of security. So our deceit reduces the humanity of others. Or how about this, avoidance. Do you avoid telling people things they need to hear because you're afraid of how they're going to react? I live here all the time. (laughs) That this person needs truth. They need correction. They need discipleship. They need help. And you're afraid of how they might respond to you, that you're going to lose control of them and your circumstances, if you tell them about truth and tell them what they need to hear, and so you avoid. You, you keep back what you think and what you believe. And, and I'm not talking about using discretion here, okay? Sometimes, yes, use discretion, use wisdom. I'm talking about when you know you are purposefully keeping things back from people because you don't want to make them upset and you can no longer manage them. It's your own comfort that's keeping you from speaking the truth. And so we avoid being able to speak life-giving truth to people, things that they need to hear because we're afraid of losing control. We cannot trust God in those circumstances. And then finally, and this is probably the most pressing one, image. Using deception to create an image of ourselves that isn't entirely accurate. And we do this by embellishing and hiding. Here's one way that I used to embellish. So I played college basketball in high school. I'll tell people this. What I don't often fill in is I only played for a semester. Because I didn't like the coach. And so I was like, heck no, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to play in the NBA, so I'm done. So I I would often just sort of lead with, yeah, yeah, I played basketball in in high school and college. But never clarifying. People, when when they say that, they're thinking, oh, you played for four years, didn't you? Nope. I played three games. (laughs) So we can embellish to give this impression that we're more impressive than we really are. Or we can hide. We don't want to admit that we're broken, where we have failed. Do you ever do this at work? Someone comes up, hey, did you send that email to so-and-so? Oh, yeah, 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 I did that. Or hey, did you remember to get this done? Let this person know, oh, yeah, yeah, I did that. Completely forgot. One of the ways that I caused conflict early in Mindy and I's marriage is when I would forget to pay the credit card and tell her that I did. But by the way, babe, I paid it this month, so we're good. (laughs) Because I didn't want her to think that I was a forgetful, neglectful husband. I didn't want her to think that, oh yeah, I I don't care about money and and I don't do the things that I say I'm going to do. So I would hide it. I I would lie about it. And she'd always find out. I'm not a very good liar. Praise God for that. (laughs) But how often 
Do we not want to admit, hey, I'm broken. I'm imperfect. I fail. And and we we can laugh about, you know, little details like that, but where is it deeper and more profound? Where are you hiding sin from people that you need to confess to? Where have you been hiding sin from your spouse? Where have you been hiding sin from people that love you in gospel community and want to care for you? And you're giving them this image that, yeah, no, I don't struggle with this sin. Or, or maybe I struggled with it a while ago, but now I got it under control. Where, where are you stiff-arming the grace of God that will transform you by putting up this image and hiding? You know, I, I like to go hard on social media, but it is such a potent and powerful influence on our lives. And it's not a lot, I'm not saying all, but it's not a lot of social media clever image management and deception. I mean, the life we present carefully curated to a particular image. Mindy once showed me this sort of tongue-in-cheek blog post that kind of finds some humor in this. So the target audience of the post is moms and it's titled, The Three Best Instagram Filters to Hide Your Nervous Breakdown. One of those filters is called Lark. This filter desaturates reds, which will soften the bloodshot nature of your eyes, making it perfect for sleep-deprived mothers. When you look back on these photo memories, you'll hardly be able to tell that you cried most afternoons. But is this not what we do? We, we don't want people to know that we don't have it together and that we are broken and we're sinful and we need help. And so we'll go to great lengths to cover what is true and what is real. It's humorous to think about, but, it's, but hiding our brokenness comes at great cost when we say, God, I cannot trust you to change me and to care for me. When I have to hide my brokenness, I'm locking myself in a prison. I am saying there's really no hope of change, and so all I can do is just manage this myself, and I'll deceive where I need to deceive in order to give this impression that I have it together. And we spend time and energy constructing a facade of an identity to try to control perception. We never experience the real, true freedom that comes from when we walk in the lights and confess our brokenness and our sin and experience the redemption of Christ. And so the problem of deception is that it is a prison. It will lock you in there and lead you to believe that you're in freedom. And all the while, you are in chains and you're in bondage. Here's the good news of the gospel. When we push away and we repent of the lie that God is not good and not in control, we can turn to a God who has made every provision for us in Jesus Christ. We can turn from our deception and find freedom and identity in Christ. This is the power of the truth. Jesus calls his disciples to something far greater. He calls them away from deceit and control and manipulation and deception and calls them into the freedom and the glory of walking in the truth. In verse 37, Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. And here's his point. The people of God don't need loopholes. We don't need exceptions. We don't need ambiguity. We can say what we mean and mean what we say. Because when we, we turn away from deception, guess what? We shouldn't even need oaths. We should, our words should be good enough. But here's why we can be people of integrity and people of honesty. is because our God is in control. He loves us and he is for us. 
And when you believe that, when you've grasped that, you don't need to hide. You don't need to tell lies. You can walk in truth and freedom. And so our word should be good and true because it reflects who we believe God to be. We shouldn't need an extra layer of security. God is our security. God is our hope. And serving God and loving others should be enough motivation to hold us accountable to keep our word. Amen? And so disciples of Jesus, we don't settle for the false promise of power through deceit. A far greater power is at work in your life that sets you free. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Put off the old ways. Put off that old identity of deceit. Put off that old identity that tried to grab control and manipulate people and doubted that God was good. Your identity now is in Christ, loved and accepted and being transformed into the image of Christ who is truth. That is the power that is at work in your life if you belong to Jesus. And if that is your identity, you don't need to carve one out for yourself through deceit. The beautiful reality is that truth saves, truth sanctifies, truth sets us free. In John 17, 17, Jesus prays for his disciples, that is us. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is what the truth of God's word, the truth of who God is, what it does. Sanctification, which is the fancy word for being set free and transformed, being healed experiencing the grace of God that turns you from a rebellious, selfish sinner into a loving, righteous, good servant of God who loves others. This is what truth does in your life. Earlier in John 8, 32, we read, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Freedom isn't found in deceit. Freedom isn't found in grasping control for yourself. Freedom is found when we trust in the truth of who God is and his word. You won't unshackle yourself through deceit. You understand that. You will only tighten your chains if you use deceit to create an image and try to control your circumstances. You won't bring security to your life through deceit because it is an unstable ground that you have to consistently manage if you ever met somebody who just lives in lies, are they secure? No. Don't buy the lie that security is found and control are found in deceit. No, those are found in the truth of who God is and in his word. And so disciples of Jesus live true. We don't lie and cheat and swindle people. We don't need to fudge numbers. We're honest in our dealings with people because we have a good father who provides for us and cares for us. And so we don't need to cheat for our bank accounts. We can be honest in our dealing with other people. We don't manipulate to try to control people and use them for our own ends. We're open and honest about who we are and who they are. We don't try to use people. We love them. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 too, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you do not need to manage people. You do not need to manipulate people. You can love them, you can be honest with them, and you can see them as human beings, not pawns to be controlled and manipulated for your ends. And with this, we don't avoid speaking truth to one another. We speak the truth in love. When our brother and our sister in Christ needs to hear truth, we don't withhold that from them. We don't withhold life-giving truth that they need to be transformed into the image of Christ. When your children or your spouse need to hear the truth of God's word, we let them know, hey, you're in sin here. Hey, you need to bring your life under the truth of God's word in this way. Let me, let me correct you here. Let me love you here. And yeah, sometimes people get upset. You can't control how people respond. You can speak to them in the most loving and kind way and they still may go off on you. But God still calls you to in honesty and, in, and holding up and honoring the truth by telling them and loving them so that they may be transformed by it. So do not withhold what is good from each other out of fear. And finally, we don't need to live in the deceit of image. Our identity is in Christ. We are loved, we are accepted, we are forgiven, we are a child of God. Look, whatever label you want to put on yourself, nothing can be greater than this. Child of God. Pastor, mother, father, president, boss, CEO, whatever, whatever label that you may think that, man, if I have that identity, it'll be fulfilling. Nothing. Nothing will be as fulfilling. Nothing will bring you peace. Nothing will bring you joy. Like that identity, child of God. And so when that is your identity, when you live in the goodness of that, you're set free. You don't need to deceive. You don't need to embellish. You don't need to hide because you are loved and you are accepted. You can confess sin and know that the other end of that confession is grace and forgiveness and healing and restoration and growth in godliness. And so if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ and you are hiding your sin right now, let me remind you that in Christ, you can confess that, be forgiven. Who do you need to tell about your sin? Whether it's your spouse, another man, another woman, who do you need to confess to and say, hey, I've been hiding this, I've been deceiving you, and I need you to help me. I need you to speak truth to me. I need you to love me because I need to grow. I need to bring this into the light. I praise God for those of you in this room. And I'm thinking of a couple people especially that have confessed sin at great cost, meaning you lost status. You lost leadership. But you didn't because you realized there's no position of leadership. There's no status. There's no thing that I can gain in this world that is greater than freedom in Christ. There's no prison that I create for myself, but man, I got the status, I got the leadership that is worth it. You confess sin and yeah, you lost leadership, but by you're walking in freedom now and your family has been healed, you've been restored and you've overcome. That is the power of the gospel because that says Jesus is greater than anything. And freedom is that good. And so praise God for you. Praise God for the grace in our church that that has happened. And may more of that happen.
So for you who are living in deceit, there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't claim to be a disciple this morning, but you're locked in deceit and you're recognizing it right now. And you're like, I I don't want to stay here. Let me tell you that in Jesus Christ, you can be set free. You can know full forgiveness and acceptance and freedom and your life can be transformed and changed by letting go of your control, letting go of your deceit and living in the goodness of a God who is for you. So in conclusion, Shakespeare's play, All's Well That Ends Well, the character Mariana says this, no legacy is so rich as honesty. Jesus says the legacy of his kingdom, the legacy of his disciples is truth, honesty, integrity. What do you want your legacy to be? Do you want a legacy of manipulation and hiding and lying, fudging the numbers, embellishing, putting a false image and ultimately trying to manage something through deceit, trying to keep control of something you can't control through deceit? Is that the legacy that you want to live? Or do you want your legacy to be freedom, joy in Christ, intimacy with God? Through Jesus Christ, our legacy can be truth and honesty and goodness. And so church, let us turn from our deceit. Let's turn from this false promise of power and control and turn from doubting that God is good and let's lean into the fact that God is good. He loves us and he is working sovereignly in our lives. And as a church, when people encounter this community, may they encounter disciples marked by honesty and integrity who rejoice in the truth because we believe it is so powerful and we want others to experience it. May the legacy of First City be that we put the glory and goodness of Christ on display through our honesty and our integrity. Amen.